Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, my guest is Roger Chen. He is co-founder and CEO of Computable Labs, a startup focused on building tools for the creation of data networks, data markets, and data exchanges. Roger has also served as co-chair of the Artificial Intelligence Conference along with me since the inception of that conference in 2016. This conversation took place on the day Roger and his collaborators at Computable released an interesting new white paper entitled Fair Value and Decentralized Governance of Data. As many of you know, current generation of AI and ML rely on large amounts of data, and to the extent that they can uh, use their large user bases to create data silos, that creates a large advantage for big companies in the U.S. and China. So Roger and his collaborators are trying to build tools to kind of democratize the data space. And if you're interested in data, data networks, and data quality, note that we have a lot of good sessions on these topics at both AI San Jose in September and AI London in October. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Roger Chen, co-founder and CEO of Computable Labs, as well as my co-chair at the Artificial Intelligence Conferences. Welcome to the Data Show. Thanks for having me. So, Roger, given your background, which is, I guess, more on the electrical engineering, quantum computing side of things, I'm curious as to why you ended up being interested in data. I mean, first of all, uh, you were, after you got your PhD, you became a VC, but then uh, you decided to become an entrepreneur, but uh, very quickly you settled on data itself as uh, an area of focus. So why data? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a whining journey for me personally. Um, I think one thing that was just sort of happenstance was um, after grad school, I got mixed up with um, some startup projects and some venture capital firms. And I ended up working for a venture capital firm, Photon. And for me personally, I just had a passion for uh, deep technology companies, deep technology products. And this was a few years ago, sort of right before deep learning kind of took off. And I noticed that there were some really interesting things happening in there. And so I decided to kind of make that my coverage area, among other other sorts of applications that are adjacent and relevant. And um, really, that's when I kind of reinvented myself into being someone who um, thought a lot more about data and led to you know things that eventually led me to this company. But I'd say it's always been a big part of who uh, I am, even back when I was more of a research scientist, because... The truth is, even when we were uh, designing nanophotonic structures for manipulating light, because we were dealing with things at a nanoscale, a lot of the usual, I guess, theoretical formula you would apply uh, wouldn't work. And so you would actually rely on simulation models to understand what's going on. And that simulation model, you know, what, what the result of that would be a bunch of data. So how do you kind of synthesize that data, analyze that data? understand what it means uh, and how do you associate that with physical phenomenon. So I'd say for, for myself and probably most technical kind of researchers at some point, it has always been a huge part of the lifeblood research. 
Yeah, and then uh, I think early on you and to our listeners out there, when I when I say that Rogers become interested in data, I mean literally data, the subject of valuing data, sharing data, governing data, and all of these things, not necessarily the models themselves, which honestly, most of the mainstream press coverage about AI and machine learning focuses on the algorithms, but everyone knows on the inside that it comes down to data. But so Roger, I think very early on, you started, I think one of the things you pointed out to me was just in the genomic space, how there was so much data, but it was all federated and no one had enough data to actually do anything interesting. Yeah, you know, so I got, by the way, you made, you made a really interesting point around this distinguishing between data and models. And I, I guess I have a slightly different uh, view on that in the sense that I think models themselves are, are data too, but they're, they're data that's been heavily transformed, right, through a lot of operations, um, which is a fascinating, that's just kind of a good fascinating thing. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah, it's a fascinating thing to think about because when you think about lineage from kind of raw elements of data to, to models that are built with it, it just raises a lot of interesting questions, right? Um, but yeah, you, you you nailed it. I think for me, there was a personal problem I encountered, which really made me want to solve data as a problem more so than than models. Um, when we started this company called uh, Computable, and it was actually because I was originally uh, really fascinated with um, starting machine learning AI based companies that worked at the intersection of you know machine learning and health, and so genomics was a fascinating area to me as well as neuroscience. And I just found that for someone like me, um, it wasn't that hard for me to learn how to build models. There's a wealth of open source software out there, a lot of knowledge. And um, that that was never my bottleneck. My, my real bottleneck was just getting access to the basic raw resources to train these models in the first place, right? These data sets. And, you know, I think that that led me to just a series of questions around whether or not there's a better way to get people to share data in a way that really respects the, the original sources of these data sets while also enabling the aggregation of these data sets, because that's really a core component that's necessary if you want to advance machine learning models. So uh, let's make this uh, more concrete. So uh, literally yesterday, you and some other people at Computable released a white paper, which I've read. Great white paper. Thank you. And the title is Fair Value and Decentralized Governance of Data. So exactly uh, what set of problems is this white paper trying to address at a high level? Yeah, I I would break it down to a couple. I mean, there's a lot of nuance to it. I I do recommend people read it and and talk to us if you have any more questions. But if if I had to, I'd roughly break it down into two kind of core areas. One is how do we establish something like data, this, this asset that we think is valuable for, you know, this age of modern computing, the internet and AI, how do we take something like that and better ascribe um, ownership to data, especially when something that can be easily replicated, right? So I think for me personally, I think a lot um, of that is going to come from this idea of data lineage. Do you know where data came from? Do you know what's happened to you along the way? Do you know who's gain access, rightfully so or not rightfully so, who's actually had the authority to, to use different data sets. And I think that's one thing we try to establish um, with our protocol as described in the white paper. These uh, the essentialized systems that ascribe ownership by having a source of truth for understanding where data came from to therefore make it more enforceable, right, to, to make decentralized governance of data a thing. 
And the other thing is just, um, you know, fairly uh, sharing value and attribution to people who crowdsource data sets. Um, as mentioned earlier, I think the ability to aggregate data is, is an incredibly important thing. And that's what unlocks a lot of progress and discovery. But I think the current models today are really centered on you know, centralized companies who have a really outsized amount of control and derive an outsized amount of value from data sets that are crowdsourced from all of us. So is there a way to mechanistically track how data is used so that because you have that provenance property, you know, as that data gets used and as people use certain data sets and pay for certain data sets, you can actually go back, almost go back in time and fairly, you know, credit and or share payments even with people who were the original contributors to that crowdsourced data set. Uh, so those two concepts intertwined are really at the heart of the protocol we're designing. Let me put you on the spot to make this more exciting and understandable to our listeners. So um, <laughs> yeah. let's, uh, let's have you walk through some enterprise use cases. Let's say the uh, protocols described in the white paper become easier to implement and use for companies. So what are some common use cases that you would suggest? Sure, I'll, I'll give you a couple. One is uh, more of a kind of um, enterprise sort of application, enterprise model. The other is more of a next generation crowdsourcing model. So for the enterprise one, for example, we've talked to companies, financial firms are really interested in sharing data. But, you know, at the heart of it, a lot of these uh, firms and companies are also competitors. So there's some trepidation around, hey, how do we really keep each other honest, one another honest as we share data? and track usage of this data and also fairly kind of distribute value to people. And then how do we do it in a way, how do we set it up in a way where there isn't just basically one company in this consortium that's sort of in charge of taking care of everything, managing transactions as well as managing the data sets themselves. There are also, by the way, some compliance issues there, right? I think uh, just regulations prohibit a lot of these companies from um, putting, putting data in the same store unless there was explicit transactions and permissions to do so, right? So in this particular example that you're uh, describing, let's say a consortium of companies want to uh, build a definitive fraud detection or risk detection, risk scoring model, then they would aggregate their data. But what about consumers and their agency and uh, who gave them permission to combine my data with some other bank? Yeah, that's interesting. That That's going to be um, right. Because if you think about the data that was collected by some of these banks and uh, these financial firms, um, you know, some of it is primary source, it's their own customers. Some of it is actually uh, through secondary sources, right? They also buy data sets to learn more about how they can fight fraud on behalf of their consumers. And I think that, to be honest, for this particular use case, that'll be a little bit challenging. I think you would require these enterprises um, to understand the value of kind of this giving more direct control and provenance to their user bases. I do think that's something that'll take time to take effect, but I think we're starting to see that begin to happen, if only because um, the public awareness, growing public awareness around this topic, plus just kind of regulatory trends like CCP and GDPR are forcing uh, large firms with these consumer bases to to give more clarity and transparency about how they use their data. So at a high level, then this particular enterprise use case will apply to any group of companies that want to aggregate their data somehow, but do it in a way that is compliant with existing regulations, it protects consumer rights, and so on and so forth. But then the applications that come about because of that aggregated data could be a uh, better models. But who owns the model? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
you're, you're hitting me with auto rate questions. So, so, so I guess, is, so. I guess, I guess each company will build their own model out of the aggregated data. Yeah, you know, well, I guess I'll, I'll give you um, kind of the short-term practical answer, and I think I'll give you the longer-term you know, aspiration answer. I think the short-term practical one is at least for this particular use case. And there's another use case I'll walk you through, which I think is a little more eye-opening. But for this particular use case, ownership will probably come down to the legal agreements that these these companies sign, right? Now, I think like more forward-looking, if you can leverage that original capability I, I mentioned, which is um, establish a source of truth for data lineage, right? That lets you know the primary source of data, but lets you record that in a way that you know no one can trust. It's just indisputable. It came from this person on this date. You know, that, that same concept can actually be applied pretty recursively, right? Like as data gets used by different uh, companies or data consumers, being able to register and log how that data was used, being able to create a continual, if you will, continuation of that data lineage property down all the way to the model level can be really powerful. But um, I think there are a lot of technical challenges as well as uh, cultural and user challenges around that. That being said, I do think there's some really interesting research um, being done now around, for example, influence functions that could extend the work of what we've done from just pure data into models as well, too. So a couple of questions. So uh, first of all, to the readers out there, I encourage you to read this white paper, and I will uh, make sure to link it on the post accompanying this episode. But in the white paper, Roger and his collaborators outline kind of the properties of the data markets that you can stand up using these protocols and the steps that you have to go in order to get them going. But I think one of the key elements here, and it's even in the title, is that it's decentralized. Is that an important component of what you're talking about here, Roger? Yeah, it's it's definitely a crucial element, right? I think if you look at what we've done thus far in the industry, with how kind of data has been been crowdsourced, you'll notice that it's tended to be uh, large centralized firms that have found these great kind of channels for continuing to aggregate data and unlock applications. But the byproduct of that is they also essentially lock in their users into a platform where the data can never escape, right? And what that really means is you have a lot of, for better or for worse, uh, large monopolistic data silos that, in my opinion, really inhibit innovation. It's really funny to me, too, because I think a lot of use cases when companies suck up all this data and are very protective over it and because they, they sell it as part of their core strategy. It's funny to me because a lot of these companies, that, that might be the case, but a lot of these companies, that data very much is this sort of exhaust that doesn't really have much direct value to them. For example, if they're selling some sort of CPG consumer package product that drives all their revenue, right? And, you know, for me, you know, why does it matter is because we want to hold ourselves to a higher standard, right? We, we've kind of seen again and again, too, that when you have so much consolidation and control of data, not only is there a lack of innovation, there are sometimes, for better or for worse, whether or not there is a express intent or not, but missteps in how that data is used, um, violations of privacy. And I don't think us and I don't think anyone should have that level of control and power. And then one way to naturally counterbalance that is to create a network that uh, distributes governance, distributes control of data, so that these technology companies that access data act more as kind of service providers and participants in that kind of open market for data, as opposed to being the pure kind of robber barons of data, if you will, (laughs) for lack of a better word. So I think I know the answer to this, but uh, I'd like to uh, get your take on it. But of course, uh, when uh, people hear the word decentralized, they think about the blockchain and technologies like that. So a couple of questions for you. 
one, what about scale and what about latency, right? So when we're talking about when this protocol gets implemented and the size of the data sets that are getting processed through this protocol increase, can it scale and can it produce the kinds of latency that people have gotten accustomed to? Yeah, it's a good question. I think to answer that, it's worth kind of unpacking at least what our implementation of the protocol sort of looks like. And I think the first thing to note is that there are two kind of key components. There's the decentralized ledger component, which we're using by building on top of Ethereum for now. And there's also a centralized component for storage and computing. The reality is for you know most blockchain networks, storage and computing is not scalable. Like you don't you don't want to use the blockchain as a database. That's not really its intent. So I do think you have to rely on these sort of hybridized systems where um, the decentralized system offers you decentralized points of control, but centralized systems actually serve. And so what, what happens for us is essentially think of it as a person or business that has some sort of data and wants to make it available to share. What you would do is you would make it, you would essentially register it into our protocol contracts, thereby kind of establishing a transaction record that shows that on this date, you know, at this time, Ben uploaded some data set into this network so that any kind of subsequent use or consumption of that data set that comes through that protocol, right, and transacts with that protocol is proof of authorized access because Ben, you decided to upload it into that network with the express intent of sharing this data with the broader public, right, through selling it or just through kind of kind contributions. Now, the blockchain part of it would be where it records a lot of these transactions and how they take place and establishing this transparent, auditable source of truth for authorized access. But how it actually works uh, in terms of the data is that as you kind of submit a listing right, to the protocol contracts to this record, you're also submitting the data associated with it to a storage uh, solution that we're calling Data Trust. And the Data Trust and the protocol contracts actually work in tandem to verify that you did indeed create this listing and you did indeed set this data and then to link that on-chain listing to where your off-chain data uh, actually lives. And so if a third party comes in and wants to access it, the same sort of mechanism happens, right? Payments are made into the contracts, into the protocol. That allows the data trust to verify that payments have been made before they then serve and deliver data to the data consumer, right? And that's a way that allows you to make sure that you have this layer of decentralized control right? While leveraging, not reinventing the wheel when it comes to the entire computing stack, leveraging what we have to scalably deploy solutions that work for people. So do you folks envision this protocol as being able to serve real-time applications? So I'm thinking, Roger, for example, uh, you know, browsing data, browsing behavior as someone is uh, surfing the internet or their mobile phone, uh, they're creating data. And then uh, presumably that can be used to our personalization models and and things like that. Do you think that the, this protocol could play in that notion of real time? So Ben, I think not only can it do that, I think um, my, my suspicion is some of the longer, you know, some of the most interesting use cases and ones that might have the most longevity will actually be time-based networks, right? Because if you think about data, you know, um, if it's a one-time sort of thing, then once you've derived your value for it, that data becomes quickly commoditized, right? Versus I think time series data is interesting because for a lot of applications, you don't just need that one time, uh, you know, data set or one one batch of data. You need that continuous access to how things are dynamically changing 
for your applications as represented by that time series dynamic uh, data set that you get, right? And to be more concrete, I can even offer some specific examples that we've explored that we've, we found to be very exciting related to real-time data. You know, one in particular is related to mapping, right? So I think it's interesting. I think if you take a look back at how a lot of maps up to now have been produced, or at least digital maps have been produced, it's really been done through crowdsourcing, right? Like every day as consumers drive and use apps created by, by certain companies, they're also piping back data that then is used to kind of crowdsource these rich, rich, continuously updated maps of, of the world. Other ways of crowdsourcing that exist, um, you know, for example, are OpenStreetMaps and what they've done with creating an open source movement and open source community around how to bring data together. But we think we can uh, basically offer a really powerful extension of that, right? So the idea here is what if, you know, these crowdsourced networks that rely on the kindness of, you know, these contributors, these enthusiasts, what if you can tell them, hey, just like OpenStreetMap, hey, as you crowdsource data, it would go into this network that would provide a lot of value by powering a lot of developers and creating all these uh, mapping applications. But what if you could say, hey, as your data gets registered into our network, we are going to use an independent platform, an independent source of truth, right, in this case, Ethereum, to register your contributions so that in the future, as anybody wants to buy access or use the data that's been crowdsourced, if your data gets used some X number of times and another person's data gets used Y number of times, you both will get paid the appropriate distribution of value for what you did, right? So what if we could add a financial market layer to this idea of crowdsourced data sets? Can we get people to get more engaged and um, more, more participation in these powerful crowdsourcing projects while also being just more fair, right? Fair to, to, these, to these people off the backs of whom that we've created these powerful applications, acknowledging their, their contributions to us. Now, I do, I do think that, you know, for me, like traditional mapping, it, it's one area that's already been kind of solved, right? So I don't necessarily think that applying this new sort of model and retrofitting it to a problem that's largely been solved is the way to go. But that doesn't mean that future mapping applications don't exist, right? So for example, right now with what's happening with autonomous vehicles, there's an entirely new need for a new kind of map through HD maps, high definition maps and 3D maps, right? So can we create this new world where you know, AV, AV map creators get to share in the economic value of that rich resource that needs to come together for this idea of autonomy to actually function. Things like that, I think, are the powerful ideas behind our protocol that we're really, really excited about. So I guess I get kind of the notion of lineage and governance in your protocol, the notion of decentralized governance. But the word decentralized also comes with a bit of baggage when it comes to responsibility, right? <laughs> So, so what happens, Roger, if there's a data breach in this scenario? Who do I blame? It's a great question, right? So I think it comes back to, you know, this other question around who's responsible, like where would a data breach happen, right? Well, if the market portion of it, the, the blockchain transaction piece of it does not handle the data, then, you know, it follows that if there is a breach, it happens with uh, the data trust solution or other storage and computing solution that you offer, right? And I think just the same way that any sort of service provider for storage and computing solutions are on the hook for making sure that they fight against breaches and mitigate against them. I think a data trust operator that provides a solution for a decentralized data market is also on a hook. But I think where it's different here is I think if you have, you know, a data market that is, for example, 
solely run by a company like Amazon, right? And it's not to pick on Amazon, but just to use them as an example, because let's say storage and computing solutions were provided by AWS, right? If that was the only way you could actually make that market work, then you're really beholden to that one service provider for your storage and computing solutions, right? Like even if a breach happened, even if some other travesty happened, you don't really have much choice in what you can do. In our view, we think service providers should be, one, there should be a market of them. There should be a market of people who are competing for services, competing to serve the data that you want to host and sell. And I think if any one of those kind of providers does not do a great job, right, and has a breach, they should be able to be kicked out of the market, right, by the market owners. Or it might not even have to get to extreme because if they don't prove that they can provide a good high quality service or product, then users will just stop using them. But a key point here is with a decentralized network, you can do that. You can switch to a new service provider. You can switch to a new uh, storage solution if the one you used previously doesn't deliver. And then one thing we're hoping to do to you know propagate that idea is what we're doing with Data Trust now, the storage solution that we're creating and we're running, that's all going to be open source, right? So the idea here is if you don't trust another person to run your data and host your data as you sell it into a market, you can spin one up yourselves, or you can be a company, an entrepreneur who wants to create a new kind of uh, storage and computing business and use our open source uh, data trust software to, to uh, power that. So w- one of the things that you and your collaborators have given a lot of thought to is valuing data. So this notion of the fair value of data. So walk us through how that works in your protocol and uh, how that changes the landscape. It's a great question. I think first we need to offer a little context because I, I mean, not all data is created equal, right? So I think in, in our case, we're really thinking about, you know, our, our passions around kind of uh, creating universal access to data. So when we think about data markets, we're thinking about open markets, right? So data as a resource where any kind of public consumer uh, can find you, business or a person can find you and make the appropriate payments to access the data. So it's open, open market value of that data. I call that out because that's very different from, let's say, for example, some sort of government state secret, right? Where the enormity of the value of that data might be you know, huge, but to specific people, but that's not something that will ever be put in an open market, sort of this one-off sort of secret, right? And so that's not the kind of value we think about when we think about the fair value data. We think about if data was intentionally put out there in the market, what becomes its fair value? And I think the um, the best proxy in that case is simply by basing value on the usage of that data, right? So every data point or every data set will have some corresponding price point. Price points will kind of fluctuate based on what application developers might choose to do or what data sellers might choose to do. But I think what you get, the natural market response you get to how valuable that data is, is simply how often people use it. And that's really powerful for concepts like uh, crowdsourced data sets, because for example, if you and I as well as lots of other people crowdsource data into a data set. But let's say I, I was just sort of devious and I pulled in a lot of data that just wasn't, took up bits and bytes, but wasn't as relevant or interesting. If your data gets used 10 times more than mine, right, it follows that your data is likely 10 times or thereabouts more valuable than contributions to my data, right? So I think having that sort of model and having that measured in an independent, unbiased way is how you can get closer than you've ever gotten to some sort of fair market value for what data actually is. When it comes to hooking up these data markets, I guess these data markets become like data sources for downstream applications, like, I don't know, like uh, dashboards or even machine learning models. 
They, they could, among other things. I think um, the protocol is actually agnostic to what kinds of data that you run it for. Um, and also on the other side, on the consumer side, you know, whether you, you know, pay to access that data to build your own brand new products and applications, or if you want to plug into your own workflow, that's really up to the discrepancy of the application developer. So first of all, I assume that because of GDPR and CCPA, you have built in technologies for, I don't know, right to be forgotten, right? So being able to delete myself from a data market. Is it possible for someone, Roger, to make a copy of the entire data market? <laughs> you know, just like a Facebook developer sucked so much data out of Facebook. Yeah, yeah, it, it totally is, right? And I think there are a couple mitigations against that. One is what we call just a crypto economic defense, which is the fact that because this isn't just data that well, I mean, it could be in some cases, this could be completely philanthropic efforts with data that's free to access. But in other cases where you're creating a financial market around this data, it costs money, right, to access this data. And if you can figure out how to essentially for your particular data set and your, your application price the data appropriately, in my opinion, I think it's, it's actually fine to the first order, right? I think if someone wants to pay some large amount of money, that might be some multiple of what they can resell your data for. They want to do that and kind of scrape your entire data set for resale. Uh, They could, but it just really um, is at their disadvantage and and there isn't a huge amount of incentive to do so. I think the other thing too is, I think there's a little bit too much made about the replication of data and that's the negative effects of that. I think one, there are also positive effects when it comes to you know, counterfeit markets in general, right, which is that more people discover and learn about your data sets, right, and the value that's there and will want to know where they can get more, right. And that this ties back to this idea of time series data as well, too. So what if your data was a bunch of historical data was replicated and a developer at a company derived a lot of value from it, but really needed persistent access, right, to future data as well, too. They're still going to come back to a data market network that provides a great service that the counterfeiters don't provide, which is this continual access to updated and fresh data. That's also primary source, are, right? There might also be uh, situations where a snapshot in time is enough to know that, for example, you lean liberal as opposed to conservative. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And I, I think for us, like we, we embrace that. We embrace that leakage, like information theoretically, right? Leakage is always going to be part of the game when it comes to to data. And that's fine. I think there are some uh, potential effects that might come on has the value of, let's say, that snapshot. But for the same reason, I think there's a lot of value in people becoming aware that these sorts of data sets are out there and wanting to buy from these markets. I guess I just want to clarify, and I think when you say you embrace leakage, you don't mean embrace leakage, which is uh, not complying with existing regulation. Oh, no, no. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Ben, I mean, you, you got it. I mean, there's there's so many different nuances that are interdependent here, right? Basically, yeah, we don't endorse leakage data, we embrace that it will happen. We accept that it will happen. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that's one thing that I think that listeners out there should understand that in this world of data security and data privacy, it's really not a question of if you're going to have breaches, but when and how much and how quickly you can respond, right? If someone is motivated, right? So, Well, one is how much does it actually impact you? Right. So I, th- I think for a lot of applications, that's a question where in many cases it impacts you a lot less than you think it does. In other cases, it certainly does impact you. And then the question becomes, what can you do about it? Right. And I think for that, um, there are a couple of things. There's sort of a near term and kind of longer term future for how to address that. 
And it really hinges on our different levers that we have for this idea of privacy and control of data, right? In the near term, I think you mentioned this a little bit earlier, Ben, but you know, one of the things that's core behind our protocol is that source of truth I mentioned earlier, right? That source of truth of authorized access. That lends incredibly well to regulations and compliance laws, right? So CCPA, GDPR. So for example, if you acquired access to data directly through the protocol, right? Which basically then tracks that you received authority to access that data, right? But, but maybe not necessarily to resell it or whatever. Then you're doing it in a compliant way. It's a very primary source transaction versus I think the risk that, you know, businesses will run if they want to buy data that's been replicated off of these markets is that you're buying non-compliant data that might actually even be illegal and also unverified. You're not really sure this is actually what they say it is, right? That, I think, is actually going to be the subtle but incredibly powerful point, right? Like, as you have better ways to establish data lineage on the internet, I think regulations like CCP and GDPR are going to have much more powerful impact on what we do and don't do. I do think longer term, something we're fascinated by as well, too, and that we have some internal research efforts around, too, is just next generation privacy technologies. This kind of grand notion of whether or not you can do encrypted compute on encrypted data, right? Uh, things like that. And I think that's incredibly exciting to me. I think the regulation compliance piece is going to be how most practical systems and networks function for some time. But the exciting thing about the privacy technology side of this is that a lot of it is not new science. It's just incredibly hard engineering problems, right? Which will take many years to solve. But I'm pretty bullish that as we figure out some of these problems, we'll be able to let people rent their data out on the internet without ever kind of revealing their data or the threat of them losing control at all, theoretically, right? Information, theoretically. And uh, on that topic, I think a good sign there is that you're starting to see cross-functional teams working together, right? So the cryptographers, the systems people, the ML people working together to tackle these problems, which uh, I think when all is said and done, Roger, might require specialized hardware. Yeah, I think that's right. right? Um, well, first, you, you called on another point that was just interesting in general. Like, if you take a look, you know, it, it's still a small community, but there certainly is a community of people who are blending cryptography with machine learning, right? That's a fascinating area for people to keep their eyes on. So I definitely recommend people do that. And there's some notable projects out there like OpenMind and TF Encrypted that I think are pretty fascinating to, to watch. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Ben. And so... At this point, right, so we've talked about uh, data being generated by humans that they're contributing to the market. There's also the notion of machine-generated data, right, so the data from windmills or whatever, right, the sensor data uh, being contributed into the market. But there's a whole other area out there which I think people are beginning to call data programming. And these are the collection of techniques that let you programmatically generate data. So... Some of it is synthetic. Some of it is uh, a combination of human labelers guiding you in uh, it being able to scale to generate more realistic and relevant data. So I can't imagine that you folks care how the data was generated, right? It could have been generated synthetically, as I, as I just described, or some other way. At the end of the day, I think what you're counting on is that the market will kind of weed out what's interesting from what's not. Well, it's a good point. Like I could flood the market with, let's say I can, whatever data type the market is, I come up with a way to synthetically generate that data type. I might be able to flood that market, right? I'd say it's a little more nuanced than that. I would say we might not care if data was synthetic or if it was collected, measured. We do still care ultimately about quality, 
right? And I do think, but that's a market. The market will signal that. Well, there, I think there's a couple. There's a couple levers, right, that you can pull there. One is, for example, when you're talking about measured data, right? Like, how is it collected? Is it collected in a way where it's verified, validated, and structured appropriately before it's put into a market? So I think that there's that layer of it. But I think you're right. You're absolutely right. If, if it turns out that you have a single data market for, let's say, video data for, you know, autonomous vehicle training, right? And let's say some of that data is synthetic and some of that data is just collected with, in the real world. I think the reality is it will take some time. Yes, of course, for the market to kind of understand what's going on. But the reality is if people find, for example, that the synthetic data might be in more abundance, but results in lower performance of some of the models built, right? Then people will start using the real data that was measured and collected from the real world more often. And that's where this fair value sort of idea kind of comes back into play, which is the market response will therefore measure the quality of that data based on kind of their value that they get out of it. And then that's going to reflect just in how often people's data gets used, which then reflects those people's ownership in that in that market. People whose data gets used more often will end up accruing more value and more ownership in that market. I imagine you would need some notion of metadata or a data catalog where one can label, yeah, this data was synthetically generated. Yeah, that's right. Metadata, all that. Because at the end of the day, you still need a way to kind of search and discover and select the data sets you want to use. So we're not absolved from all the basics uh, when it comes to sort of data. All right. So let's end by having you describe basically how do people get started using some of the ideas outlined on the protocol and what should they expect over the next six to 12 months? Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks for this opportunity in the chat. It's, it's been a fun chat and it's been fun to talk about what we're up to. Um, I think the first thing to do is come visit us, right? Visit us online, give the white paper a read, take some time to digest it. And there's a lot going on. There's a lot of nuance and complexity. What about code, man? Code. Oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. You know, give that a read. And what we did recently is we actually launched a public forum as well as a Discord channel. So um, we really encourage you to kind of come talk to us if you have questions around how the protocol works and you know what sorts of applications you can build with them. Now, to your point, Ben, we've actually been in development for about a year now, right? So this hasn't just been sort of, it's not just kind of mathematical models that we've been thinking about in our heads. We're actually quite close to uh, pushing out a full version, our first full version of uh, this protocol onto an Ethereum public test network, right? Following that, we will be able to ship this network this protocol onto a public Ethereum network and people will be able to really engage and play with it and understand it. And that's happening in the next few months. And until then, if you want to kind of follow what's happening, even at the code base level, everything we're doing is being developed in the open, right? So if you just visit github.com slash computable labs, you'll be able to see everything we're doing in the live in the wild. All right. Thank you, Roger. Yeah, thank you. It was a great time. So reminder, if you're interested in the topics Roger and I discussed in this episode, we do have great sessions on data, data quality, and data networks at both AI San Jose in September and AI London in October. You can follow Roger Chen on Twitter at RGR Chen. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.